from KQED. In the history of American politics, Jerry Brown stands out as a California original. Few people can match the impact he's had on the state's image and political trajectory. But after 50 years in the political arena, Brown is spending more time these days on humbler pursuits. Talking to my wife about the tomato plant out there, I noticed on one of the plants there's a lot of yellow leaves. I said, is that because it's working harder or is it actually not getting enough water? Or maybe is it fertilizer? Or maybe there's a little disease on there. Well, how do I find out about that? So these were the important matters while you were waiting. Brown is out of the California governor's office, where he spent a record 16 years, and now lives on a ranch in rural Calusa County with his wife, Anne, and their two dogs. During Brown's last year in office, I thought to myself, someone should record his life story. So I reached out to the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. Let's do this together, I said, and they agreed. And then Jerry Brown said yes. This is uh, Monday, February 4th. 2019, and the first recording with Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, We're at his ranch in Calusa County. Mm -hmm. Over the course of more than 40 hours, Jerry Brown told us his life story, the world according to Jerry. And early on, he noted that despite his decades in politics, very few people call to ask his advice. I noticed a gap between what I know and the number of people who are asking me questions about what I know. We heard it again and again from Brown. He's up on his ranch, just waiting to share lessons learned from his half-century in the game. After all, he was a young phenom on the national stage before Pete Buttigieg and AOC, a pioneer of small donor fundraising before Bernie Sanders. And he's learned from failure, too, facing humiliation on the presidential campaign trail and crises at home. So I was a little surprised to hear that others weren't tapping into this fountain of political knowledge. Well, then the interview started. Well, let's talk about the beginning of you, uh, which is, uh, I think, April 7th, 1938. Yeah, I have no recollection of that. Well, others do. Brown questions your questions. See, you can't even formulate that question in in a way that I can make use of it. And often critiques what you're asking before answering it. Well, first of all, I don't think that question is entirely clear. And don't even bother asking him what people are like. What are people like? You know, if you ask me, what are you like? I'd be hard pressed to give you an answer. And before you get to the political lessons, you've got to wade through Brown's world of ideas and books. Lots and lots of books. Peppert, he wrote a book called Mindstorms. I heard all this Huxley talk about Zen bones and flesh. Emily Dickinson had a poem, I'm nobody, who are you? One of them is embodied in a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But we pressed ahead, and over the course of several months and all those hours of conversations, we asked lots and lots of questions. What was he thinking at age 21 when he called his dad the governor and urged him to give a reprieve to a guy on death row? Why did he admire Ronald Reagan so much, the guy who became a Republican icon, and on top of that, he'd beaten Brown's father in the 1966 election? When he ditched the governor's mansion and turned in the limousine for a blue Plymouth, was it all for show? He told us why, in some ways, he liked being mayor of Oakland more than being governor of California, and how he almost ran for mayor of Los Angeles. And how he saw his role as California's governor during a so-called era of resistance, We recorded every word, and one of the things that struck us is all the lessons he learned about politics, winning elections, 
fending off politicians and lobbyists who had what he calls limitless needs. Brown had insights about the political landscape today, ideas that are very relevant as 2020 unfolds in what could be the most important election of our lifetime. The result of our conversations is this series, The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I have a political mind. How clearly do you see? How, how good is your eye? Get the get ins out and to get the outs in. What wouldn't happen but for me? But for, but for me? I reserve the right to think for myself. Right to think for myself. Hi, everybody. Scott Schaefer here. I'm the politics editor at KQED in San Francisco, and this is The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I moved to California in 1981, July, I think it was, and Jerry Brown had been governor for almost seven years by then. And to be honest, it kind of seemed like Jerry was wearing out his welcome, big time. Brown was fighting a battle with a tiny little bug, and the bug was winning. The Mediterranean fruit fly, which now threatens our health, our agriculture, and our confidence in California's ability to cope with a major emergency. Mediterranean fruit fly, medfly for short. The medfly infestation was threatening California oranges and other crops, and Brown was getting pressure from growers and the Reagan administration in Washington to spray the trees with a controversial chemical, malathion, to kill the damn thing. A lot of people started to question Governor Brown's decisions. He declared it, it was just five years earlier that Brown was on top of the political world bursting onto the national scene as a new-age kind of politician, a post-Watergate good government type, railing against corruption and money in politics. And when you have that kind of a situation, the average taxpayer is not going to get a square deal. Preaching the virtues of limited expectations, small is beautiful and all that. And trying to chart where we can go in the future. I don't think government ought to be the answer to everything. If, if it is, we're not going to have a free country anymore. His globetrotting romance with rock star Linda Ronstadt landed him on the cover of Newsweek magazine. Brown and Ronstadt seem to represent the ultimate interaction between politics and show business. His non-traditional, some said kooky, approach to politics and his talk of exploring outer space had earned him the nickname Governor Moonbeam. Now planet, spaceship Earth, we're all going through the universe together, taken out of the same well, the same ozone layer, and we've got to protect it. And I A lot say- of people were kind of fascinated by Jerry Brown. I remember my dad, who had never made a political contribution to anyone, sent Brown 100 bucks for his 1976 presidential election. But he'd run for president twice and lost both times. By the time he left the governor's office in early 1983, the attitude of most California voters seemed to be, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Is he just a political opportunist who senses when political tides are changing and how to ride them? Fast forward to 2019, and Jerry Brown was leaving the governor's office again after another eight years. And this time, it seemed he could practically walk on water. He was the elder statesman, the grown-up in the room, the guy who rescued California from debt, took on Donald Trump, and championed the cause of climate change. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. That's quite a story. The son of a governor who studied to be a priest, then left the seminary for the world of politics. A magnificent rise and a dramatic crash landing only to rise again. A political phoenix flew out on top. 
But before there was Jerry Brown, the seasoned politician, there was Edmund G. Brown Jr., just a little kid growing up in Forest Hill, a quiet, upscale, leafy part of San Francisco. I was born in 1938, so my first few years that we had World War II, we had rationing and um, there were no cars for sale, so you have the same car. There was no houses being built and there was a certain simplicity. We began our conversations with Jerry Brown on a topic he didn't seem too interested in discussing, his childhood, which began 81 years ago. It was a time when kids were seen but rarely heard. The relationship that I see between sons and fathers today is so different, so profoundly different. My father did his running for office, being district attorney. His father, Pat Brown, was a rising star in local Democratic politics, becoming San Francisco's district attorney in 1943 when Jerry was just five years old. That was when I was growing up, till I was um, in the eighth grade, and then he ran for attorney general. But he did his adult thing, and I played with my friends in our neighborhood, Forest Hill. Brown says, unlike today, there was an impenetrable line between the two worlds of adults and kids. You've heard these politicians say, I have to talk it over with my family. I have no experience of that. What about political talk at the dinner table? Nope. I don't ever remember talking to me about it or talking to my sisters. You know, should I run girls? This wasn't a political science course. In 1950, Pat Brown vaulted from being San Francisco district attorney to becoming attorney general of California. The greatest satisfaction that I think I've had of all has been working in behalf of all the people of this state. But back then, young Jerry didn't share his dad's political ambitions. Well, I don't think I was really engaged in politics. And yet, he was surrounded by it. He met Adelaide Stevenson, a Democrat who was running for president against Dwight Eisenhower. I liked hearing him speak. I watched his convention speech in 1952. I thought it was very exciting. It is the party of no one because it is the party of everyone. Jerry was in Catholic school at the time, but there was no campaign for class president, no organizing a young Democrats club, and as his dad told UC Berkeley oral historians, his only son had no aspirations to follow in his father's footsteps. He wasn't too interested in politics at any right. time. He, uh, he wanted to be a priest. That's right. Jerry Brown wanted to be a priest. And according to his dad, he hoped to go straight from St. Ignatius High School into the seminary. At mm -hmm. 17, he called me and said, I want to be, and this was on his birthday, he said, I'd like to enter the Jesuit order at Los Gatos. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you my consent. I want you to wait for another year. He was only 17. Mm -hmm. As Jerry puts it, he rebelled by what he called a greater conformity, doubling down on his interest in the historical perspectives that Jesuits studied. The innovation was more mysterious, just a, a wider horizon in my mind. So in the summer of 1956, after a year in college, Brown began life as a Jesuit in training. He moved into the Sacred Heart Novitiate, perched in the hills above the Santa Clara Valley back when there were cherry, almond, and apricot trees instead of office parks. The bell rang at 5 o'clock. At 5.30, you started your meditation. An hour later, you go to Mass. At Mass, you go eat in silence. Then you clean up in the kitchen. Then you come back, and on your day, every 45 minutes, the bell rings. 
it was, to say the least, removed from the life the rest of his family was living. And you're not, there's no visitors. So you're living this world. So it's relatively, what other world is there? Brown says he knew nothing about the world of Sacramento, where his father was choosing between a run for governor and the U.S. Senate. But that didn't stop him from trying to influence his father's career path. He wrote me a letter from the Jesuit order. He says, I know you're thinking of running for governor or senator. And he says, I think you've already... The basic question seems to me to boil down to this. Where will you have the best opportunity of doing the most for God and country? Which two ends are necessarily the same? After one of our interview sessions with Brown, we asked him to read the letter he wrote more than 60 years ago, the letter to his father. I can't say much about your political future, except that you have a duty to God and your neighbor and your religion upon which your decision ought to be made in accordance with. Please excuse the inaccuracies in this brief analysis, as I have a little experience and I'm far away from the political scene. With love, Jerry. P.S. My advice, make a retreat and ask God's help. You can't do it all alone. That was a beautiful letter. But Jerry's father had already made up his mind. You see, I was bound. I mean, I, I, my feet were planted in concrete. Pat Brown had made a deal with a fellow Democrat to tag-team the ticket. You run for Senate, I'll run for governor. You know, the kind of inside political deal that was a world away from the Jesuit seminary. We're talking about saving the world. Not, not talking about saving San Jose. Not saving the world. You know, India, China, Africa. That's a big thought. On the night of November 4, 1958, the Jesuits made an exception and let Jerry Brown watch TV. In California, Senator William F. Nolan, GOP candidate for governor of California, losing to Edmund G. Pat Brown, the state's attorney general. Pat Brown was elected governor of California with nearly 60% of the vote. It is the party's most impressive victory here since the turn of the century. In Massachusetts, Senator John F. Kennedy... And then back to the isolation of the seminary. It was a very intense experience. And I suppose that with all intense experiences, they, they tend to wear off. As that intensity wore off, Brown's fervor for the Jesuit causes began to slip as well. And then as it diminishes, you see things in a different light. And so, yeah, I did have that experience. That's probably the essential reason why I left. After three years in the seminary, Brown said goodbye to the Jesuits and enrolled at the University of California, Berkeley. And it was in those first few weeks out of the seminary that the political mind of Jerry Brown would start to develop. He would learn that the world of the Jesuits, the world of ideas that he was leaving, was very different from the world of politics. That education began on a February night in 1960. Up in Sacramento, Jerry's father, Pat Brown, was governor of California, and Pat was facing a decision of life or death. In my own opinion, the uh, Chessman case has attained an importance all out of proportion to what it should. The next morning, Carl Chessman was set to be executed at San Quentin Prison. It's been my observation in this Chessman case that we have extremists on both sides. Chessman hadn't killed anyone, but under California law, the crimes he committed, rape and kidnapping, had him facing the gas chamber. There are those that feel that he should be let completely go. There are those that would like to draw and quarter him. During the 12 years he spent on death row, Chessman became something of a celebrity, even giving interviews from San Quentin. I don't feel that there's anything equitable or fair or sensible or socially valid about capital punishment. 
He wrote four best-selling books and had fought to have his execution delayed seven times. It seemed like just about everyone had some advice to give Pat Brown on whether he should grant Chessman his eighth delay. Then I've received thousands and thousands of letters, some of course from crackpots, but tremendous number from very serious-minded people. Ninety out of a hundred of these uh, letters uh, recommended some form of commutation. The governor's advisor, Fred Dutton, told Pat the sensible political move was to let the execution happen. After all, that was the law. But according to Dutton's oral history, Pat continued to wrestle with the decision. In the Chessman case, he would just he was falling all apart. He never believed in capital punishment, even though he was DA. His Catholicism was deeply against it. He had thought through the problem, he was against it. Brown's daughter Kathleen remembers seeing her father agonizing. When every death penalty case execution was being decided, my father would get a black binder, thick black binder, briefing book, and he'd bring it home, and they were always dark nights. And on this night, Brown was all alone. Ladies and gentlemen, a big American welcome for the assembled Olympic athletes of all nations. A hundred miles northeast of the governor's mansion, the Winter Olympics were kicking off in Squaw Valley. Kathleen and her mother, Pat Brown's wife Bernice, were at the festivities. Brown's advisor, Fred Dutton, left the governor's office to make it to the opening ceremony. The last thing I did before I left the governor's office about 4 o'clock was make sure that Pat agreed we Chessman was not going to be touched, that he had made up his mind, that it was through it. Pat agreed he wouldn't interfere with the execution. So Dutton and the Brown family went to the opening ceremony, and Pat sat alone in the mansion. And then, just before midnight, the phone rang. Hello? Oh, yes, yes. Fine, how are you? Jerry Brown, fresh out of the Jesuit world of spirituality and ideas, was calling to give his father some political advice. I guess I'd never uh, encountered anything quite so directly as an execution. Being in that hothouse of concentrated activity and focus, the idea that you execute somebody like Carl Chessman, it definitely seemed like the wrong thing to do. So Jerry made his case to his father, the governor. The next morning, Pat Brown's advisor, Fred Dutton, woke up in snowy Lake Tahoe. Got up and I went out in the car about 7.30 or 8 and turned on the car radio and get the news. It's hard to know what actually tipped the scales. I made the decision late last night sometime between 10.30 and 12 o'clock. Pat Brown had delayed the execution of Carl Chessman for 60 days. In the meantime, he tried a Hail Mary pass and asked the legislature to ban the death penalty. Jerry persuaded me to do it at the very last minute. I didn't really want him to be executed. I never felt that he should be executed. It wasn't Jerry that changed my mind. I needed something to push me over the cliff. The cliff was steep. State legislators were furious that Pat had passed the death penalty decision to them. I had a terrible time with the legislature, with the general public, with the press, with myself. And I was in, in a very bad, uh, very low depressed throughout that entire year. I Pat Brown had been governor about a year when the Chessman thing blew up. There were threats of recall, so this was really a body blow. And ultimately, Brown's proposal to ban the death penalty went nowhere in the state Senate. The incredible drama of St. Quentin Penitentiary is over. Carol Chessman has been executed. In the gas chamber, he breathed the poison fumes that terminated his life. 
Pat Brown would go on to sign laws to create the modern UC system, fight housing discrimination, and in 1962, he won a second term, beating Richard Nixon. But the governor and his advisors said he never really regained the political momentum that he lost in the Chessman decision. It was like a, winning a, a great big fight, uh, winning a boxing match, way ahead on points in the ninth round or the tenth round, and all of a sudden somebody hitting you in the jaw uh, without you knowing it. But it was really, I went wherever I went, I was booed, and it was a very, very unpleasant experience. In the process, his son Jerry learned a valuable lesson. The world of politics was very different from the world of ideas. I was surprised at, at the reaction, definitely. I was coming from another simpler world. You were about 22, I think, at that point. And your dad was the governor of the state yeah. of California. And you pick up the phone on a, you know, an important issue that he probably understood maybe better than you did. Well, I hope he understood better than I did. And yet you convinced him to change his mind. I mean, that... That's kind of extraordinary. Well, it is. It's very extraordinary, but it happened. Brown told us it was hard to see the hostility directed at his father for taking his advice and delaying Chessman's execution. Looking back now, he says he really didn't understand how the world worked when he was fresh out of the seminary. That Jesuit training had developed Brown's spirituality and intellect. We were dealing with uh, the Bible, the writings of Ignatius Loyola, the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, who said something to the effect that every time I left my monastic cell and went out among men, I came back less a man. But the seminary hadn't trained his political mind. I did not understand the chemistry in the California legislature. Yeah, the nature of political reality. And the political reality is that vengeance or you might say, as people call it, justice made him in the minds of people a fitting candidate for being killed by the state. It was as if Brown said, here was some native from Patagonia dropped in the middle of California offering advice. Coming up on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, the moment that forever altered the course of Brown's life. So I decided right then and there, I think I like politics and I think I'll find a way to run for governor. We'll explore Brown's political rise and his views on running as a political outsider. Shiny new object. That's very important, whether it's president or dog catch. How did Brown go from a political novice to statewide office so quickly. It reminds me a lot of the generational change that we have today. That's next on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org.